and pro- This is Viewpoint with attorney and author Chuck Chrismeyer. Viewpoint is a one-hour talk show confronting the issues of America's heart and home. And now with today's edition of Viewpoint, here is Chuck Chrismeyer. James, the brother of Jesus, made this statement. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers or many temptations or trials, knowing this, that the trying of your faith works patience or enduring power are you stand encouraged by that passage well maybe not maybe not particularly in america but christians around the world do because they have experienced exactly what james talks about Today on Viewpoint, we're going to take a look at the times that we are in. We're going to take a look at recent developments coming out of Israel and right there at the Temple Mount. And then we're going to see what Jesus' brother might have had to say about our times. Are you ready for this? Welcome to Viewpoint. I'm Chuck Chris Myers, conversation with ever-increasing conviction, talk that transforms. And again, today is absolutely no exception. Christine Darg had a piece in the Jerusalem Post today that I thought was instructive for us all. She says, the Temple Mount in Jerusalem is the focus of ongoing Bible history and prophecy. This is the center of the world where Abraham offered up his son Isaac where King David purchased land, and where his son Solomon built the first temple. It is also where Jesus cleansed the temple. Ancient biblical Mount Moriah is Jerusalem's most recognizable landscape. To the Jews, it is called the Temple Mount, and to Muslims, it is called the Noble Sanctuary. And since Israel recaptured the old city of Jerusalem from Jordan in 1967, The Jewish state has maintained a fragile religious balance, and the Temple Mount is indeed the most divisive real estate in the world. 37 acres, the most precious and divisive real estate in the world. Well, Jesus prophesied in Luke chapter 21 that Jerusalem would be trodden down by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles would be fulfilled. So... The sign of all signs that has not been presented or present in any generation until now is the reemergence of the state of Israel in 1948. After nearly 1900 years. One of the hottest end time prophecies at the moment is the building of a third temple. The very real possibility, says Christine Darg, of a third temple is a sign that no other generation has seen. All the implements of temple worship have already been created. Hardly a week goes by without some Temple Mount controversy for fear that the Jews will build their house of worship, even though, even though we find that the One World Religion Headquarters is about to go online, in reality, 
in Abu Dhabi, launched by a Muslim cleric and Pope Francis, if you can believe that. It's true. It's to go into operation this year. But the very real possibility is a sign that no other generation has seen. All the implements of temple worship have already been created. The Hebrew prophets all proclaimed that in the last days, the exiles of Israel, that is the dispersion, the diaspora, will return to the promised land and restoration of the temple will be their greatest ambition. In fact, Ezekiel, right there in Ezekiel 37, predicts, Then the nations will know that I, the Lord, make Israel holy when my sanctuary is among them forever. So, just as the prophets foretold, the Jewish people are returning to the Holy Land, and we're going to see what's happening in just a few moments, are returning to the Holy Land from the four corners of the earth after 19 centuries of global exile. And, well, all of this activity called Aliyah, which means to go up in the Hebrew, is happening. Preparations are well underway to build the third temple. Hmm. Well, let's take a brief look at what's happening with regard to this matter of Aliyah. Where does that fit? That's the return of the Jewish people to the land of promise. Well, this year, this report just came from the Jerusalem Post. Israel absorbed this year 60,000 new olim, that is, those making Aliyah, over the past Jewish year and expects to see the total reach 65,000 by the end of this Hebrew year, which is a 128% increase compared to last year. The country from where the most immigrants came over the past year was Russia, with 47%. That was followed by Ukraine, with 25%. The U.S. was 6%. France, 4%. Ethiopia, 2%. And then about 12% from other countries. Can you see, then, how... The war, Russia against Ukraine, and Ukraine against Russia, is actually fulfilling Bible prophecy. You probably haven't thought about it in that way. We've talked about it in other ways that it fulfills Bible prophecy, but in this way, it's putting pressure. Pressure. Do you know what the word for pressure is in the Bible? The same word for trials, tribulation, tribulation. So the Ukrainians and Russian Jews are experiencing tribulation, trials, pressures. And what are those pressures and trials leading them to do? Leave the lands of the dispersion and return to Israel in fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham, and then through all of the, almost all of the prophets, telling the Jewish people that they will indeed return to the land of promise so that God will fulfill his covenant. World Jewry put close to $100 million into this operation to help make it possible and to help assimilate 
uh, these 65,000 new Jewish immigrants. But comparatively speaking, even though they're increasing numbers, they're never nowhere even close to what ultimately is going to happen. And the pressure is going to increase dramatically. How is Israel going to absorb the millions of other Jewish people scattered throughout the world, about 5.5 million of them? How is it going to happen? When the United States can't absorb those that are coming in across the southern border as large as the United States is. Think about that. We'll be back to talk more about the role of the temple, the temple mount, and tribulation when we get back. Stay tuned, friends. Your life could well be changed as a result of this program. Once upon a time, children could pray and read their Bibles in school. Divorces were practically unknown, as was child abuse. In our once great America, virginity and chastity were popular virtues, and homosexuality was an abomination. So what happened in just one generation? Hi, I'm Chuck Chrismar, and I urge you to join me daily on Viewpoint, where we discuss the most challenging issues touching our hearts and homes. Could America's moral slide relate to the Fourth Commandment? Listen to Viewpoint on this radio station or anytime at saveus.org. Welcome back to Viewpoint. I'm Chuck Chris Meyer. It's conversation, as always, with ever-increasing conviction, talk that transforms. And I trust that today will be no exception. We're living in times that are amazing. Don't you agree? Things that we would never have expected are happening. They're happening right before our eyes. And we need to get serious about their implications. According to the letter coming from Christine Darg on the Jerusalem Post this week, apparently even mainstream media now are just beginning to accept the idea of temple preparation activities not as a fringe idea, but an important aspect of Jewish culture. She says more than 200 of the 613 commandments in the Torah cannot be performed without the temple. Now, that's a big deal to the Jewish people. It may not seem like a big deal to you, but it's a big deal to the Jewish people because they're still living in Judaism. They're living under the law. They have not received Messiah. They have not embraced Messiah. And so they are living under the law. But they can't Obey the law, because the ability to obey obey the law has been prevented from them doing or having at their disposal. They have no temple. They have not had a temple since 70 A.D., when the Roman general Titus rode through Jerusalem, destroyed the temple and the walls of Jerusalem, and took the Jewish people captive to Rome. The prophet Daniel and Jesus and the Apostle Paul all prophesied that the future sinister figure known as the anti-Messiah or counterfeit Christ or anti-Christ will defile the third temple before the return of Jesus. 
Now, that doesn't sound like a very peaceful thing to happen, does it? He will defile the third temple before the return of Jesus. Hmm. Both the prophet Daniel and Jesus referred to the temple's defilement as an act called the abomination of desolation. You probably remember hearing those words, don't you? Jesus warned about the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, and he added for the future generation that sees this defilement and let the reader then understand. Jesus said, The Apostle Paul in 2 Thessalonians said, He, that is, the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. That was Satan's goal from the beginning, wasn't it? I will be like the Most High. I will ascend to the heights of the north. He was talking using language that the Jewish people knew meant, I will ascend to the Temple Mount. I will be like the Most High God. So that's Satan's goal. And he's going to do that, accomplish that through a human being, because God gave dominion to humankind in the earth. So Satan knows that he has to accomplish his goal to be like God and to rule and reign from the Temple Mount and from the Temple itself through humankind, concentrated in one being called the Antichrist. Now, while we're talking about this, maybe this is a good time to introduce to those who don't know about it my uh, uh, recent book called Antichrist, How to Identify the Coming Imposter. Antichrist, how to identify the coming imposter. And the identifications that are used there are not what most people think of when they think of identifying the Antichrist. Oh, yes, we do talk about the mark and the number, but those aren't the primary identifications that the Bible talks about. And so the book deals with the primary identification aspects that the Bible talks about so that we can understand the ways, the words, the practices, the character of that counterfeit Christ figure, the Antichrist or Anti-Messiah. $22 on our website. We'll put the book in your hands. $22 on the website, saveus.com. Org, saveus.org. I urge you to get a copy of it. It'll help you to better understand what we're looking at and where we're going. Now, following that came the book released last week, no, three weeks ago, Messiah, my 10th book, Messiah. Unveiling the Mystery of the Ages. Unveiling the Mystery of the Ages. That's where all of this conversation is leading here today. And we're going to discover what is going to happen 
before those things take place or as they're in the process of taking place, and it has everything to do with you, with me, with our families, with our congregations. It has to do with all who profess the name of Christ. So I trust that you will continue to listen here today because your life and the life of your children and grandchildren, pastors, the life of your congregation, may well be at stake with regard to the things that we are going to be talking about in the second half of the program here today. Now, only a man of, it would seem, let's put it this way, it would seem that only a man of amazing diplomatic skill who will be accepted by both Jews and Muslims would be able to broker a plan that would allow the Jewish people to worship in a temple on the Temple Mount where King David originally purchased that territory. Daniel, the prophet Daniel, in chapter 9, predicted that this dealmaker, known again as the Antichrist, would break the peace plan. There would be a peace agreement. He would break the peace plan. And then in Isaiah chapter 28, calls it a covenant, God calls it a covenant with death. It's going to be disannulled. Now, God is going to disannul Israel's covenant with death with this counterfeit Christ figure because, as the Bible clearly says, a father and a husband, if and when they hear a wife or a daughter enter into a vow, must decide whether to allow that vow to stand. If the father or the husband decides that that vow is inappropriate, maybe ungodly, unwise, whatever it is, that father must immediately disavow that vow. That will relieve, that will relieve the daughter or the wife of the obligation to fulfill her vow before the Lord that went out of her mouth. That's what God is saying here. I am a father, and I am the husband of Israel, and I am going to disavow that covenant, that covenant with death, with the Antichrist. That does not mean that there aren't going to be consequences that are going to flow from the vow that was made, or the the covenant that was made. But God himself is going to disavow it so that the full implications of that will not fall upon Israel. So regardless of its future location now, people are always troubled about, well, how could you build a temple there on the Temple Mount? Wouldn't that start World War III and so on? No, not if God has said it's going to happen. It won't. The future temple's ritual garments and vessels, they've already been designed and created. I've written about that in our books. The golden menorah, the seven-branch candelabra, is on display in the old city's uh, Jewish quarter. Also ready are many Levitical musical instruments, silver trumpets, and harps for worship. The Temple Institute School 
is training certified DNA-tested priests to perform temple services, and many of these services have been rehearsed. A final element, listen, this is critical, a final element, the need for a red heifer has not been made available. It's necessary, according to the Torah, according to the Scripture, for the Jewish people and their priests to institute temple sacrifices. Not only do they not have a temple now, they do not have the red heifer. Well, they didn't have the red heifer until now. It's been been in the process of being bred for the ritual purification ceremony required by the Torah for temple sacrifices. So, everything's ready. Everything's ready for the third temple. In fact, some Muslim leaders, says Christine Darg, from Israel, who are part of the Abram Accords, have admitted that the Temple Mount really belongs to the Jews, and that Muslims should be concentrating on their holy city of Mecca. Now, that gives us a context for our, the rest of our conversation here today on Viewpoint. We talked about the red heifers. Well, here's the news today. Red heifers arrive in Israel. The Temple Institute made a huge step towards reinstating the temple service last Thursday when five red heifers landed at Ben-Gurion International Airport. The red heifer was the main component in the biblically mandated process of ritual purification for impurity that results from proximity or contact with a dead body. And because the elements needed for this ceremony have been lacking since the destruction of the Second Temple, Jews today, all of them, are considered ritually impure, thereby preventing the return of the Temple service. But now... The red heifer is available. Everything is ready. Question, are you ready for what's coming? That's really the question today for the balance of the program. Those are the things that are taking place in fulfillment of biblical prophecy. But are you ready for the things that are coming? Dr. Michael Brown has talked about these things. But just the last couple of days, Joseph Farah, who is the founder of WorldNet Daily, the the longest existing and largest Christian news agency in the world, penned a piece called Testing versus Temptation. While the Bible clearly says that God does not tempt anyone, it is true that God tests us. He allows us to get into situations where we must make a choice between right and wrong. So it's temptation versus testing. Jesus himself was led into temptation. In fact, Matthew told us the Holy Spirit led Jesus to the wilderness to be tempted or tested by Satan. Therefore, it was God's will that Jesus be tested. And that doesn't mean it was God's will that he be led into sin, 
And so that's the distinction. In the book of Job, you know that he was tested by Satan. God allowed it. The Bible says God allowed it. But it doesn't suggest that it was God's will that Job sinned. In fact, Jesus told his disciples, you are they which have continued with me in my temptations. So clearly, it's God's will that we face temptation and resist it, just like Jesus did. In other words, temptation itself is not sin. It's just a test to strengthen our faith. So are you ready for such a test? Don't answer too quickly, because the majority of Christians in the Western world despise that idea and have rejected it outright. Hmm. How have we done that? Stay tuned. There is so much more about Chuck Chris Meyer and Save America Ministries on our website, saveus.org. For example, under the marriage section, God has marriage on his mind. Chuck has some great resources to strengthen your marriage. First off, a fact sheet on the state of the marital union, a fact sheet on the state of ministry, marriage, and morals. SaveUS.org. Marriage, divorce, and remarriage. What does the Bible really teach about this? Find all of this at SaveUS.org. Also, a letter to pastors, the Hosea Project, saveus.org, and many more resources to strengthen your marriage. It's all on Chuck's website, saveus.org. Again, you can listen to Chuck's Viewpoint broadcast live and archived. Save America Ministries website at saveus.org. Here's what's hard for us to understand. God desires that you and I be tested. If we're not tested, we don't know whether we pass the test. In every other area of our life, we don't seem to have a problem with understanding the purpose of a test, except when it comes to our faith. And why is it that so difficult for us to comprehend and accept the idea of being tested through temptation and so on and persecution when in every other area we understand testing? For instance, I'll never forget preparing for the California bar exam. The most difficult bar exam, at least it was reputed to be at that time in 1975, the most difficult bar exam in the country. I prepared for months. I prepared for months. The first time around, I didn't pass. I don't know why I didn't pass and by how far I didn't pass. Well, do you know what that meant? I couldn't practice law. After four years of going through all of the uh, training, the work, the uh, gravity of reading and briefing cases, reading and briefing cases every night, every weekend, I couldn't practice law. So I had a choice. Would I be willing to prepare again 
would I be willing to put forth the time, the energy, and so on to prepare for another bar exam? I decided I, I must. And so I began that process. It wasn't easy. In fact, something dramatic took place between the first bar exam and the second bar exam. It was an amazing spiritual move on God's part. I was already a believer. But he began to show me some things about my life and about the uh, per- his purpose for my life, particularly. And it began to change everything. So instead of always studying for the bar exam... On my way to the special bar exam classes in the evening, I memorized Scripture. That may seem like a strange thing, but that's what I did. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. And then, three months later, I took the second bar. And I passed. Now I was able to practice law and was admitted to the California Bar and to the uh, the National Bar, and so I could practice law in the courts of the land, at least California and the Federal Bar. But I had to pass the test. Now, there are tests in every single area of our lives. Some of them come in the form of temptation. Others come in the form of pressure, persecution, and so on. But in reality, all of these are tests of our faith. God doesn't want or permit us to be tempted beyond what he knows you and I can bear. Remember the Apostle Paul wrote about that. He says, there is no temptation taken you but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted or tested above what you are able, but will with the test or temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. Now, the word escape doesn't mean having to, getting to avoid the test. It means being successful in passing the test. That's how you escape. You escape by being successful in passing the test. And as we open the program today, we read from the book of James, Jesus' brother, who said, my brethren, he's addressing all of us who purport to be followers of Christ, count it all joy when you fall into many temptations or trials. Why should we count it as joy? Because it is going to prove us. It's testing our strength. In fact, it's strengthening us. He says, knowing this, that the trying or testing of your faith works patience, endurance, staying power. But let this patience have her perfect work, that you might be perfect and entire, lacking in nothing. I don't know about you, but I don't want to lack in any area, especially if we're on the near edge of the second coming of Jesus Christ. I don't don't want to be lacking, and I don't think you want to be lacking either, but there's a problem. 
There's a problem with our thinking. There's a problem with our attitudes in America and the Western world, but primarily in America. And the seeds that we have sown concerning this in various aspects of the Western world. So we're going to talk about that now in the second half of the program. One of the things that I have discovered or am discovering as I read various Christian publications, as I sense the nuances of what certain pastors, certain leaders are saying. Here's what I'm discovering. I am discovering that many, not all, but many, a growing number of pastors and leaders are willing now to consider that Christians might just have to go through some persecution, might just have to go through some tough times. Now, what does that really mean? What it really means is that for several generations now, ever since the Schofield Reference Bible came out in the early 1900s, increasing numbers of Americans have developed the idea, taught by pastors and parachurch leaders and so on, that they're not going to have to go through tribulation. They're not going to have to go through tough times. As many pastors will say jokingly from the pulpit, don't worry about that, we're out of here. Really, we're out of here. So what they're saying, in effect, is even though Jesus said you're going to go through persecution and testing, even though James said so, even though Peter said so, even though Paul said so, and even though the Apostle John said so, Americans aren't going to have to. That's really what they're saying. We know best. So it's kind of like a Pollyanna type of faith, a counterfeit faith that says, yes, I believe in what the Bible says, but not quite so much. I'm not going to believe what it says about having to undergo trials, tribulations, testing, and trouble. Now, here's what's happening. A number of pastors and parachurch leaders are now beginning in small ways to begin to say in kind of camouflaged ways, uh, well, don't be too certain. You're probably going to have to go through some pretty tough times because just look at what's happening now. You haven't escaped yet, have you? That's the point, see. They're saying, oh, my goodness, What we're seeing now happening in our world, and yes, even in the United States of America, is suggesting maybe we're not going to all be out of here before tough times comes. So now what do we do? And so they're trying to cover themselves. In secular language, they'd call it CYA language. Cover your rear end. So let's take a look at what one of these authors is saying to help us to understand this issue. The title of his article, coming in the Midnight Call magazine, is called Suffering Tribulations and the Great Tribulation. 
Suffering Tribulations and the Great Tribulation, a fellow by the name of Johann Flom has written it. The subtitle, Societal Developments Are Worrying. Christians are consoling themselves with the fact that they'll be raptured before the situation gets really bad. Why this is a fallacy, even for those who believe in a pre-trib rapture. Ah, so he's still claiming the pre-trib rapture, but saying, ah, don't consider that a pre-trib rapture is going to get you out of testing trials and tribulations. Now, this is interesting. They're trying to cover their tail because for decades they've been preaching a pre-trib rapture that basically says you're out of here. No problem. So let's take a look at what he says. We'll take a look. We'll, we'll take some significant excerpts out of his article and perhaps make a few comments about it. Now, before we do that, remember, it's not just Antichrist who's coming. It's Messiah. But what's going to happen as we face the onslaught, the coming of Antichrist, who will precede the coming of Jesus, Messiah? What's going to happen? Well, the Bible tells us what's going to happen. Read my book, Antichrist, How to Identify the Coming Imposter. It tells us what's going to happen. But most Christians aren't aware of it or try to pretend that they don't know about it. But the only way you can be prepared, friends, is to be prepared. Study for the bar exam. Because we're all going to face the judgment bar of Christ. Are you going to pass the test? Don't answer too quickly. Don't answer too quickly. But there won't be any second chances at the bar. That's the problem. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to prepare. Today is the day to be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. Today is the day to uh, be girded with the uh, girdle of truth and the helmet of salvation. We'll be right back. Have you ever considered what the early church was like? Many people are developing a heart longing for a greater fulfillment in our practices as Christians. A recent study showed 53,000 people a week are leaving the back door of America's churches in frustration. What is going on? Why has there not been even a 1% gain among followers of Christ in the last 25 years? Could it be that God is seeking to restore first century Christianity for the 21st century? Jesus said, I'll build my church. Is Christ by His Spirit stirring to prepare the church for the 21st century? The early church prayed together and broke bread from house to house. They were family, and it was said by all who observed, Behold how they love one another. Incredible. But the same can be found right now. Go to saveus.org and click Sell Church. We can revive first century Christianity for the 21st century. It's about people, not programs. It's about a body, not a building. That's saveus.org. Click Sell Church. So good to have you join us here again on Viewpoint Today to confront the deepest issues of America and Americans' heart and home from God's eternal perspective. 
You see, the Bible is so relevant. We don't have to create any kind of artificial relevance. It is so relevant that many people just don't want to face its relevance. So we try to create artificial relevance. And we do that through things like the church growth movement, the seeker sensitive movement, the emerging church movement, and all of these different kinds of things to try to soften and uh, uh, give a milky toast message that is contrary to the scripture, but it's easy to swallow because it's mixed with so much sugar. You know, as Julie Andrews said, a little bit of sugar makes the medicine go down. Well, yeah, that may be true, but uh, we need to look at things from God's uh, perspective here. So, right now, we know that there is movement in Israel toward the rebuilding of the temple. We know that the Feast of Trumpets is coming on starting Sunday, which is God's warning of judgment to Israel every year. Rosh Hashanah, Yom Teruah, the blowing of trumpets. We know that there are warnings of famine now throughout our world. Jesus talked about that in Matthew 24. Wars, rumors of wars, famines, pestilence in many places. We know, I mean, we're being told all of these things. Now we're being told that at least Europe and perhaps much of the Western world is going to suffer greatly, particularly cold countries, are going to suffer greatly during the winter because we've cut off our oil supply. This last weekend, Donald Trump warned, talked about how he warned Germany several years ago, warned Angela Merkel, that if you continue playing footsie with Russia concerning the Nord Stream pipelines, they will own you and you will very well lose your nation. Well, guess what? They're on the edge of it right now. Germany is in deep trouble. Russia has them over a barrel. And they're reverting to coal. That's right, to survive. They're in deep, deep trouble. So there are testings everywhere. Things aren't looking real good. Now, our purpose is not to focus on that, but to focus on what Jesus and his apostles have said concerning dealing with these kinds of pressures. In John, Jesus said, I have said these things to you that in me you might have peace, but in the world you will have tribulation, testing, trials, pressures in the world. So the word tribulation could also be translated, as we've said, distress, great need, fear, pressure, And Jesus didn't tell his disciples, in the world you might have tribulation, or you might occasionally be be tribulated. Instead, he unequivocally predicted that among humanity separated from God, you will be in need or under pressure. It's inescapably tied to being his follower. It's inescapably tied to being a follower of Christ. You weren't told that when they came to you evangelistically and said, pray this prayer, were you? That's the problem. We have not properly presented the gospel. 
we presented a Pollyanna view of the gospel. This writer says, even if the rapture should occur before the Great Tribulation, in this world, Jesus' disciples can expect tribulation, fear, hardship, and distress for Christ's sake. That should protect us against a naive expectation, a world seen through rose-colored glasses. It's also likely to mean that as we face the developments occurring around us, we shouldn't expect that freedom of belief will continue as before. (coughs) This gentleman is being honest. He's backtracking now on almost everything that this particular ministry and magazine has said for the past however many years they've been in existence. I've subscribed to this magazine for years, read it every month. They have never, ever, ever come out with anything like this. But now they're seeing the handwriting on the wall. They're seeing that things aren't the way they have promised. That there is going to be Tremendous trial, testing, challenge for professing Christians. Even before a great tribulation should come on. He goes on to tell us about what happened, a report that came from China, the Christian church in China. Here it is. This Western missions movement had brought many gifts to the church, but they had also promoted the idea that the church would escape the final period of tribulation. When the missionaries were expelled during the Cultural Revolution under Mayo, local Christians believed that God had raptured these missionaries to heaven and left the local Christians to suffer the Great Tribulation by themselves. Now, after the worst period of suffering was subsiding, missionaries returned to the astonishment of these local Christians in China. They said, you told us that we were not going to experience the Great Tribulation. We thought you had left us behind. But God has used us on our own. We do not need you here. We can do this task on our own now. In other words, but they basically said, you deceived us. That's what they basically said. You deceived us. You told us everything was going to be wonderful, everything was going to be cool, no problem, we're out of here, and it didn't happen. You were the one that went out of here, not us. So this account teaches us to be careful not to harbor unfounded expectations or let our fear of suffering dictate our belief in the pre-tribulation rapture. This is an amazing statement coming in this magazine that has promoted the pre-trib rapture and we're out of here idea for decades. He goes on to say, we shouldn't allow ourselves to be guided by pious, suffering-averse, wishful thinking. Instead, we would do well to prepare ourselves for the tribulations and afflictions of discipleship that our Lord spoke of. One example from the Islamic world, the writer says, I spoke with a brother who has good insight into the issue of the rapture where Islamic countries are concerned. He told me that the question of whether the rapture would occur 
pre- or post-tribulation was typically a Western discussion, in other words, American. He said that the persecuted Christians in Islamic countries don't concern themselves with it. Why? He said, what's the point? What would be the point of telling the suffering church that their suffering wasn't so bad after all because the great, great tribulation wasn't here yet? In the liberal West, mainly America, the writer goes on, we must not fall into the piously disguised superstition that our freedom of religion is guaranteed. Anyone going about their business in the world with their eyes open can't miss how hostility and societal opposition to the gospel are increasing. While the air grows thinner and thinner under the totalitarian dictatorship of tolerance. Today's so-called tolerance mindset specifies exactly what is tolerable and what is not. All religions are tolerable, except our Lord's absolute claims that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man will come to the Father but by me. Even the Pope doesn't apparently believe that. Or he would not be uniting with a Muslim sheik to launch a world religions center in Abu Dhabi this year. So the writer concludes saying, instead of fighting each other about when the rapture is going to happen, we should be examining whether we will be in submission to the tribulations or trials that following Jesus will bring into our lives today and in the future. Friends, that is exactly what we have been doing here through this program for 27 years. Increasingly, preparing the way of the Lord in the life of professing Christians to be able to endure, as Jesus said, he that endures to the end, in other words, pass the tests and doesn't capitulate under tribulation and trials, shall be saved. That's what Jesus said. Matthew chapter 24, among other places. It's amazing what reality will do to change our theology. A little dose of reality to change our theology. The Apostle Peter did not escape persecution. In fact, he wrote about all of this very, very seriously. Let me share with you what he said. Chapter 4 of 1 Peter. For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. The end of all things is at hand. Be therefore sober and watch unto prayer. Beloved, don't think it strange concerning the fiery trial 
which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice, inasmuch as you are partaker of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. If you be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are you. For the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. Just don't let any of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall be the end of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Wherefore, let them, us, that suffer according to the will of God, commit the keeping of our souls to him in well-doing, as unto a faithful creator. Now, that puts it pretty, pretty straightly. And that's only one place that the Apostle Peter talks about this matter of suffering. One of the most, one of the best-selling, perhaps the best-selling Christian book of all time came from a verse in Peter and another passage in his steps. Maybe you've heard of it. The most modern version of it was called what would Jesus do? So what would Jesus do in face of persecution, in face of trials and tribulations? Hmm? What would he do? He says, follow me. Okay. Lord, I thank you that you will give me the strength and the courage to follow you no matter what comes. I'm going to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, that all the other things will be added unto me. Amen. Thanks for joining us. Get a copy of the book Antichrist and Messiah right there on our website, saveus.org. Saveus.org. Call us, 1-800-SAVE-USA. Become a partner, friends. This is tough business for these troubled times. You've been listening to Viewpoint with Chuck Grissmeyer. Viewpoint is supported by the faithful gifts of our listeners. Let me urge you to become a partner with Chuck as a voice to the church declaring vision for the nation. Join us again next time on Viewpoint as we confront the issues of America's heart and home.